You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. To open up to Genesis chapter 12, where we are cruising along here uh, at a pace of kind of getting through Abraham by June is what the, um, the study scope and sequence looks like on my, on my iPad. And uh, we have just been introduced to a really important really um, uh, significant, uh, really powerful um, uh, new story, and that is the story of the life of Abraham. Well, his name is Abram right now. And so what we looked at last week was uh, the beginning of God's plan to redeem the whole world through one covenant family. That's what we took a look at uh, yesterday. And the beginning of that storyline starts with God calling Abraham out of his home and God giving Abraham some promises to pursue. Let me just pray once more as we kind of continue on in the scripture this morning. But Lord Jesus, um, I just thank you for worship. Um, you know, we talk and we, we plan and we, we gather and, and, and we do group life, but it's at the end of the day, it is about your presence. It's, your, it's about your presence that, that um, brings us home. It's your presence that gives us what we really need. Um, it's your presence that has power. Uh, it is your presence that heals, and so I thank you, God, for your presence. But as we go into this scripture this morning, I pray that you would teach us to just steward your presence well, to follow your presence, to not quench or to um, uh, offend um, your presence, but we, we would be, as Colin said, submitted to it, and we would follow it um, with everything that we have. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen, amen. Um, I want to talk about the topic of um, faith this morning. It's a pretty easy topic to talk about when you start to look at the life of Abraham. And I want to ask the question to begin our time, uh, how does faith grow? How does faith uh, go from uh, immature to mature? How does faith go from beginning faith to mature faith to full faith to friendship, friendship with God, which is the chief end, I think, of faith? How does faith grow? We know how grass grows, I guess, or somebody knows how you know, kids grow or animals grow, but how does faith grow? It's a little less obvious and tangible. Um, my, my family, uh, Kyra and I, my wife, um, wife Kyra that is sharing at the, at the women's uh, group as they were talking about earlier, um, we, we started having the kiddos in 2006, which makes Rose uh, 13 years old. And uh, Rose currently is the tallest of her cousins. She's a little bit taller than her mom now. She wears the same size shoes and the same clothes. So as you guys can guess, if you're a mom, that means that a lot of your best and cleanest clothing is usually missing because of that transaction that happens. She also steals my clothes, so she's not gender-specific in that way. She just sort of steals whatever is, you know, around. Um, but it's pretty alarming to see that she uh, is getting ready to get a driver's permit and go to high school. It's just kind of very alarming to me, very, very scary to me. Um, uh, my, my youngest son, Ali, yesterday, uh, he looked up at me, and, and he said, Daddy, and I said, yes, and he said, Daddy, I getting bigger. You know, this is, this is the thing with kids is they, they, they want to grow up. You ever hear the Seinfeld joke and what's that special he calls, I'm telling you for the last time, he's like, if the kids, everything's up, they want to stay up, they want to grow up. And the adults all want to slow down and slow down and, and put that down and, and all that. They want to grow up. And so Ali looks at me, he says, I'm going to grow up. I'm getting bigger, daddy. And he's like, this is my muscle, just like this. This is, this is what he says to me. This is my muscle because I'm getting bigger, bigger, bigger so that I can drive a car. And I was like, oh, this one too. They're all just growing up and, and driving cars and, and and it'd be unnormal if, if kids, you know, didn't grow. It'd be weird if Rose still wore squeaker shoes that we still have and keep for mementos. Squeaky, 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 squeaky. And it seems like yesterday when she was two walking around, that'd be weird 
if uh, the kids got stuck, if they, if they didn't grow, you know, and, um, and we can see that. We can see the obvious change. We can see the obvious physiological change, but maybe beneath the surface of children or beneath the surface of human beings or beneath the surface of church, like, do we see the growth of faith? The Bible says the faith is a gift, and the Bible says that each of us has a measure of faith. Jesus would turn to some of his disciples and ask him, where is your faith? Or why is your faith so small? He quantifies faith. Even the passage I read earlier during worship in Matthew, he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. So he's measuring faith. Like you can have more or less faith. You can have healthy or strong faith, the weak faith. And so that's my question this morning. He's like, how does faith grow? How does it grow? Who grows it? What is the process for its growth? That's one of the major themes that we need to be looking at when we think about how God is changing his his good world turned bad through people, not just for people, but through people. It will take faith. It will take Abraham's response to God. And so if I could, I think maybe the words that I would put on it so far and just looking at, it, at Genesis 12 so far and then continuing on in the passage is that, uh, that faith kind of has this two-part response. And that is um, the first part of faith, uh, the Bible says in another passage of Scripture, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God the first part of faith is the calling of God. Uh, Abram's sitting there. He's a moon-worshiping, idol-worshiping pagan guy in a place called Ur in the land of Chaldeans. He has no uh, namesake to himself. He doesn't know God. He, doesn't trust, he, he, doesn't, he has a wife that doesn't, can't have kids. He's, he's a nobody from nowhere. That's the point. Like That's the Bible's way of saying this guy is a nobody from nowhere, and God calls his phone. And he calls Abram and calls him just as he is right where he is as a complete assignment of grace. In other words, Abram's not looking for God. God calls Abram before Abram calls God. God sees Abram before God, because before Abram even knows where to look. God loves Abram before Abram would ever turn to love God. That's the idea is that faith is initiated. The Bible says that faith is, uh, is, is authored and perfected or pioneered and perfected by God. He's the, he's the catalyst of every faith. Anyone that turns to God we know that's evidence of his presence because people don't do that. He's initiated it. But there is a response. So God gives Abram a promise and he calls him simultaneously out of the home to receive the promise. In the next passage, it's important that we observe the full conclusion of faith is that it says Abram leaves his home to follow that promise. And so that is the beginning of faith, and it continues on. Beginning faith, maybe not mature faith, is simply this. It's trusting in the promises of God. It just takes promises, it takes the word of God, and it just trusts it. Because here's the thing. As I just met you and I gave you a promise, you don't have my character to base it on. You only have my word. And maybe I could really stir you up or make you feel like I'm connected with you. But at the end of the day, you don't have history with me. You don't know my character. So you're only going to be able to trust my word. And so that's the beginning essence of all faith is just to trust God at his word. But it's the beginning of faith is not the end of faith because the goal is not just to trust the promise, but to trust the person and the character of God. And so this is the way that Hebrews talks about it in, in, in 11.8. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. He says, by faith, when called, like this is him summing up the entire biography. Could, you know, he only has one sentence to do it. And this is what he's trying to say is the whole point of what we're reading. And this morning when we read about Abram, it says in verse 8, chapter 11, it says, by faith, Abram, when he was called to go to the place, he would later receive as his inheritance, a gift, that he obeyed, part two of the faith process. He followed, he trusted, he responded to the calling. And it says, even though he did not know where he was going, he went. 
And so it's that two, two-part process. I think a lot of times, um, I, I know as a youth pastor now doing ministry here at City Lights, um, I think that it's probably pretty uh, normative that whenever somebody first hears the call of God on their life and they want to respond to it, there is a, a need, a desire, uh, a goal, and a propensity to want to understand what's ahead of them. Like, like, like I can see sometimes on the face of people during sermons or when we're talking or whatever, one-on-one is like, just tell me what I what should I do? Like, what do you want me to do? I'm here. I got my notebook out. I got my wife. I got, you know, the girlfriend. I got the boyfriend. It's like, just, can you wrap it up, pastor? Can you tell me what I should be doing? Can you just get through it? It's like, just tell me the thing that I should be doing. And when I think, when I, when I put, put my eyes on this in beginning faith, I think that the word of advice or counsel or pastoring is unfortunately good news and bad news at the same time is just to trust God at his word. That's essentially what I think this story is telling us, is that faith means, this is the definition I have, faith means trusting the promises at face value, trusting the promises of God until we know the character of God, trusting the word of God before we know the person of God. And it is true that it begins that way, but it doesn't finish that way. There are people in this room that the promise of God, such as come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls, is not just a promise or an idea. That's a real part of people in this room's story. And that's what it could look like for faith to become mature. Faith that is growing uh, is starting with trusting his promises um, and it is continuing on to know his character. Take a look at some of these promises and, and maybe you might consider just from Jesus and then we'll get into the story this morning. But there's, there's, there's really two legs of the journey. There's, there's trusting in the word and then eventually coming to trust in the character of God. Jesus says to us this way, come follow me, he says, and I will send you out to fish for people. Come and follow me. You know, he'd say, let's say to our church, the promise is not the building. The promise is not the future. The promise is not even the, the neighbors or the people next to you. The promise is he is making you right now a disciple maker. It's not up to you. That's what he's called you to do. He will execute his promises. And he's not telling you to go read a book or apply certain principles. He's asking you to follow him and trust him. And he's letting you know ahead of time where he's going, but you don't know all the steps and the twists and turns and the do's and don'ts and starts and stops. You don't know all that. You just know the word. And so your goal here is to just take, this is what it means. It's, it's faith comes by hearing. If you have ears, you know, like, do you hear what it says? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This scripture, for example, is powerful, not because it's, a nice, catchy, pithy phrase is powerful because it comes from the lips of Jesus. It has an authority. It has a promise to it. And so my question to you is, does your heart hear these words? And the question becomes, it's it, like whether or not you will grow to become a person of no faith into some faith, into much faith, into friendship with God, all depends on your response to that text. Do you trust it or do you not? Will God make you a fisherman? Will God make you a disciple maker? Will God make you a person that is bringing blessing to the nations, to be a blessing, to receive blessings? Will you be a person that is protected by God? It's not, up to, it's not about what is the, the do's and the don'ts and the top three things and the, and the principles of faith. It's simply the question, do you trust that as you take steps towards him and follow him, he'll make you a disciple of men? More quickly, come to me, all you who are weary. Do you trust that at face value? And I will give you rest. Jesus says that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. Do you trust that beyond the grave he knows more about eternity than you do? Do you trust it or not? 
There's no proving. There's no, um, there's no uh, apologetic. There's no philosophy to be learned or gained. It's simply about the word of God, hearing it and trusting it. Do you trust it? Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Do you trust that word? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will live in the light of life. If you continue in my word, you will truly be my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from them, Jesus says. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe, he says now on the negative side of the promise, that I am he and you will indeed die in your sins. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I will speak it on my own. Faith begins by trusting the word. The goal of faith is not just to trust words, but to trust a person. And faith grows in this way. Faith can only be grown through the process of testing the promise in your life. I'll say it again. The Abram's, Abram's life is a journey. We'll read through the next chapters of scripture to chapter 25 when the torch is passed to the next patriarch. We'll look at Jacob and then in Joseph. Ultimately, it's ultimately the same faith and it's ultimately the same story and the same God. But it starts from the same place. It starts from the place of walking. It starts from the place of following. And then what becomes a promise becomes an experience and a character and a history with God. But it starts with the promise. And what it takes to get from the promise to the delivery of the promise is a significant amount of unavoidable testing. And that is what this passage is all about. Genesis chapter 12, verse, I don't remember. Uh, 11, I think it is. No, it's earlier. Genesis chapter 12, uh, verse um, 10. The story starts out, Abram uh, turns the page from the promise and calling segment of his journey, and it says, now there was a famine in the land, it says. Verse 10 hits us like a brick uh, at the beginning of this journey. Abram has just learned to trust God and follow him. He's left his home in Ur, and he is following the promise. He's trusted the promise. He doesn't know where it's going to lead him. And chapter 1 is a story about famine. Lack of food and resource for his family, for his kids, you know, well, not kids yet, but for his uh, servants and the people that he's brought with him, his animals, which is the grocery store. There is no Publix BOGO. You know, we don't understand, I don't think, what it means to truly be hungry, to truly, you know, have our, our life on the line in, in the wake of famine. This is where we find Abram's story beginning is not in the place of abundance, but in the place of famine. And so it says there's a famine in the land and Abram, he says, goes down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. We don't understand famine. My kids tell me they're starving all the time. I don't believe them anymore. They're not starving. I just have to plug my ears because none of us are starving. We never starve. None of us, I would guess, are, are, are starving. Uh, we can go to the grocery store. I've never known a day of hunger. That is a very unique uh, place and time for humanity. It's very rare, honestly, when you think about the scope and sequence of all of history that people can get food and access to food all the time. Famine was a reality for many, many people and for many Bible readers throughout the ages would totally connect with the idea of famine. We have to kind of understand it. I read uh, in a statistic that it takes 70 days to starve to death. So when my kids say they're starving, they'll say, come and talk to me in 69 days, I guess. Uh, we can live for, I guess it's like eight to 10 minutes without oxygen. We can live for between uh, three to six weeks, I guess, without water. And we can live for about 70 days without food. Now, 
the quality of life and the deterioration of our bodies starts to dwindle quite rapidly if, we're, if we don't have enough uh, food in our bodies. Um, but, but the psychology of it, you know, the losing of energy first and then the deterioration of, of our midsection, which is not the worst thing in the world, but then also our muscles, you know, our, our, our energy level and so forth, it's, it's a slow dying process of, of not being able to have food. And it's deeply divinely profound, is it not? It's hard to detach the suffering of somebody uh, in another country or maybe sick in this country that can't have food or doesn't have access to food, starving and going into that kind of a suffering without connecting to God in some way. Like to see somebody starving for such a baseline hierarchical need of water or thirst or oxygen, there's something that is so emotive. Even the least empathetic person, I think, could see a hungry, starving person and just think, why? It's the basis of our need is bread. But Abram is not in this land of famine on accident, Right? Let's remember why Abram is in the place that he's at. He's in the place that he's at because the calling involved location. And he went to a place. God didn't call him to a vocation or call him to a thing to do. He called him to a place. And so we know that not 88%, 100% of the reason why he's there is because he listened to God. So God isn't sending him into abundance. God sent him in his first day of first grade with his backpack on to famine. How many of you guys find out that when you follow Jesus, all your problems don't just disappear magically? that sometimes they can actually get worse. There's a theology that says that if you do good, you get good. And if you do bad, you get bad. And that's not always true, is it? Sometimes you can do good and get bad. And sometimes you can do bad and get good for a long time. And we do not do well to base our theology based on the surroundings of the circumstance. He is a person of promise and faith and he's stepped into a pretty bad situation. And so, and so God is going to test Abram in this, in this place. This is, this is, um, this is not uncommon to the walk of faith. This is not uncommon to the walk of faith. Think about Jesus. Matthew 4, he gets baptized. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, you are here to bring the kingdom of God to the earth, day one. And the spirit sent him into the desert to be tempted. Following Jesus does not always mean abundance, does not always mean that things work out. And it doesn't always mean poverty either. It's not a vow to asceticism. It is a vow to the following and trusting of the presence of God. And in Jesus' dialogue with uh, Satan that tempts him in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, we find the lesson that God is showing and teaching Jesus in that episode, as well as trying to show and teach Abraham, which is this sentence that Jesus says. Man, do you know this? He had told the, the, the Israelites in the desert in Deuteronomy when they were tested for 40 years, man, this is what I need you to understand, Abram. There's things more important than bread. And what I want you to understand is that man does not live on bread alone. This is the hard fact that, that, that Jesus is, is learning as he grows in wisdom and stature with God and man, that he's learning from his father directly. Man does not live on bread alone. There's more important things than bread. If Jesus were to bank his life on bread, if he were to live his life for fear of lack of bread, the father's concerned that his heart wouldn't be in the right place. And, and it's not that he wants Jesus starving. He wants to teach Abraham how to do more with less or be diet or have, have good endurance because faith means that you have endurance. It's none of those things. It's simply the question, do you trust God or do you trust something else? Do you trust God or do you trust bread, Abraham? I'm making it a divergent path. You have to choose. Do you trust bread or do you trust God? That's the question. God did not give manna in the desert because it was awesome and better than Panera, nor because he wants his people to starve. It's just that he thinks, he knows that there are things that are more important than starvation. 
And so he told the Israelites the same lesson as he wants Abraham to learn is that you do not get your provision ultimately from bread. Remember the promise, Abraham? The promise doesn't say Panera will bless you. The promise says, I will bless you. The bread of life will bless you. Do not become shallow, Abram. Do not become dependent or a slave to something else, Abram. Do do not base your life and your covenant on something that can be here today and gone tomorrow and be taken away by the famine. Rather, in this season, I want to show you where it is that all bread comes from in the first place. I am the source of every resource in your life. I am the one that blesses you. Will you trust me, Abram? Think about it this way. In the places that you're in famine, in your life, maybe you're in famine for a job, you're in famine for a relationship, you're in famine for a mentor, you're in famine for peace in your marriage. We, we're not, you know, struggling to find, maybe struggling to find an empathy for lack of food, but we still have lack. And consider the fact that maybe God is not only not preventing the lack, but is authorizing the lack, that he has called you into a season if God is in control of all things. God doesn't intend all things or intend all pain, but consider this, that at least in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in our Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, when God leads his people into famine, it's not for vanity. He leads them to save them. He is not leading us in our, in our famine from a significant other or, you know, victory, let's say, over, over um, emotional discomfort or what, what have you. He's not doing that to starve his children. He's using every moment so he can free his children. He is, not, he is not a glutton to just say that following Jesus means you get everything, but he's also not a, a, an asceticism person that just says that following Jesus means that you just learn how to do more with less. He's not concerned with wealth or with poverty so much as he's concerned with faith. And he's growing faith through testing Abram and testing you and me. Continues on. It says, verse 11, as he was about to enter into Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, this is, uh, this is uh, Abram talking. And by the way, you'll notice, uh, and not that this is a good thing, that God doesn't speak anywhere in here. And it's probably not because God's not speaking. It's probably just because Abram's not listening. So you're going to hear a lot of Abram's monologue and see how it kind of works out for him. He says, uh, hey, as I'm entering into Egypt, to his wife, Sarah, he says, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, ladies, when your husband comes to you and starts the sentence off, I just want to let you know, babe, you are a really beautiful woman. You might watch out for what comes out of his mouth next. Verse 12, he says, when the Egyptians see you, and there's a little bit of a see and take from Genesis 3. We'll catch that in a minute. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me to let you live. Now pay attention to verse 13. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well that's his, this is his plan. This is actually going to get repeated. That I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared. Okay, so look what he just said. Think about him thinking his process versus God's promise and what faith would look like and what obedience looks like. He says, say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. One thing you have to note about God, and this has showed up in the last story, this story, and will show up in the next story, is God in this process of building faith in you and I is not a helicopter parent and he will allow us to fail. A lot of times in our generation, we don't like to see our kids fail. We come in, write emails to the teacher. We helicopter around to the coach about why they should get more minutes and so on and so forth. We wanna make sure that our kids don't get bumped and bruised too much and we, we don't allow them to struggle and fail and probably hurt them more than we help them. But God is not a helicopter parent and he is not here to be a sin policeman. He speaks to and heals people with lots more problems than the things he's healing and he's completely fine with that because he's less concerned 
with the surface area of things because he knows that all surface things come from deeper things. All behaviors come from beliefs. And so as a good parent, he allows the process to take place. If his greatest concern was male chauvinism or if his greatest concern was the safety of his people, he would just sort of swing in and kind of hover around and make sure that everything's okay and nobody has the famine. But he allows for the process to play its part because he knows that faith has to be tested if it's going to grow. So he's going to allow Abram to make some mistakes. So what is the belief system that God is addressing in this passage. He is not as concerned, I mean, not to say that he isn't concerned with the, with the you know, subjugation of, of Abram's wife and, and some of the principles he'd want to teach Abram, but he's not interested in the principles because he knows you can teach somebody principles and they don't understand the promise and they don't grow in faith. And so the whole project of making the bad world good again won't work because he wants conduits, he wants agents of change. He doesn't want passive, passive uh, onlookers. So he, so he parents them and he allows it. But what is the lie that Abram believes? It's clear as day. Verse 13. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of Yahweh that protects me and provides for me, my great shield and my reward, the one who watches over me, my shepherd, guides me with rod and staff. No, because of you, because you're a looker you look good. So that's going to get me somewhere. You see that? Is it bad to have a wife? No. Is it bad to trust your wife? No. Is it bad to share your gifts and resources with your spouse? Great idea. Is it bad? Is it bad to see your wife as the source of your protection? Yes. Yes, that is why. That is why the lesson is deferred. That is why he is allowing this with, without, without impasse here, without talking into the issue. Abram believes, if you follow the passage along, this is exactly what he believes. Abram believes that Egypt will provide for him in the place of famine, which is why he goes down there as opposed to speaking to God. Egypt will provide and his wife will protect. And this is God's parenting policy, by the way, if you're thinking about how to parent like God. How's that working out for you? This is about God's probably favorite parenting. When you think about, and you're going to see the repentance moment at the very end of this passage, same thing as Adam and Eve, what have you done? What, 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 did you, what have you done? If he was a policeman, if he was, wanted robots, if he wanted to coerce and, 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 and sin manage and make sure nobody says anything wrong or anything bad goes wrong, he wouldn't allow this to happen, but he doesn't want that. He wants to parent. He wants sons and daughters. He wants relationship. And so he allows the process to go on so that the belief can come out. I have a, a, a friend of mine named Rick Thomas, who's a counselor here in Greenville. Recommend him. He's a great guy. I don't know if he's still practicing anymore, but he has like networks of counselors. And I remember I went to his counseling class about biblical counseling. There's a difference between just counseling, giving people advice and taking people back to the Bible. That's for sure. And so I remember sitting in the class and man, I just, it was his tone. You know when somebody has that tone and they can say things that other people can't say to you, but they just say it and it just feels like a good like stab to the heart. Like they just convict you with the way they talk. And that's what you need, man. You don't need counselors that are just, you know, goobing you up. They need, you need somebody to help you get to the sharp parts of the truth of Jesus. And so, and so I remember I'm sitting there and he would talk about these examples. He'd have them off the tip of his head. He'd talk about different husbands and wives and spouses and, and everybody. It's like there's common, co- common idols you know, and common problems that happen, you know, in, in each and every marriage. You know, he says the top three are, are um, sexual intimacy, uh, budget, and in-laws. So if you got three for three, that's, bless you. You know, that's what you got. And so he'll talk to you 
And you're like, oh, what a sweet guy. He's just like my Uncle Rick, man. He just, what a good guy. Loves me, man. This is a good dude. And then he just hits that button. And he'll say, he'll pull up to the, to the wife. And he'll talk about the whole thing. And he'll say, so, Macy, so sweet. You guys married since 06. And he'll say, so, when you think back, like, how long have you been married to your mom but living with your husband? Like, how long's that been going on? You know what I mean? Oh, oh, I didn't, I thought you were Uncle Rick a minute ago. How long have you been married to your job with a ring on your finger that says you're married to your wife? How long has that been going on? Right? How's that working out for you? So what's going on in in this passage? What's going on is, well, I'll read it. It it says it clear as day right here in uh, verse 14. It says, when Abram came to Egypt, it says the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. Just like Abram said, right? Verse 15, and when, Pharaoh, uh, when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for his sake. Did Abram's plan work? Absolutely. That was his plan. Remember that was his, remember? They'll treat you well. He plans the whole thing out. That's right. And did it work? Uh-huh. Do, do good things happen sometimes from bad choices? Yeah. Like we can't always use the, the response of the choice that we make as a litmus test for whether or not it's actually from God or not. But he says it happens just as Abram says, draws up the play like the Super Bowl. Verse 16, he treated Abram well for, uh, uh, for his sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male, female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. What just happened? Have you ever seen? He pimped his wife. He, you, that's a dowry. That You understand what just happened? He, 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 he brought some of you guys, the wives. My wife sometimes has dreams about things I do in her dream. And she wakes up and she's like, I can't even believe you'll look at me after what you did to me in that dream. This is the kind of quiet time that you're like, were you in Genesis 12 by chance this morning? Because this is the kind of thing you're like, you would sell me as a dowry to the Pharaoh to break covenants with you, slimy, you know, you know, such and such. What is it, what is it saying? What, what, what's going on here? It's, it's, saying that, it's, it's saying that the see and take model is well at hand in Egypt. The see and take, Genesis 3, sinfulness has gone from choice to culture. And there's an empire here. And what's it saying? Is that, is that in Genesis chapter 12, God is not the only one that's giving covenants. Egypt wants a covenant too. Covenant is simply who protects you and who provides for you. It's not necessarily the ring on your finger or the theology you profess. It's who do you trust to protect and provide for you. God is a jealous God and he realizes he is not the only lover to be pursued. The text is clearly showing us here that Abram has a calling and a choice to follow. But it's not just about hearing and following. It's also about what he will trust in the midst of the testing. Will you trust me or will you trust the Pharaoh? Will you trust me, Abraham, to be your protector and provider or will you trust your wife? It's a middle school faith. It's pretty hard to argue to yourself or someone else when you're 13 years old that um, life isn't about being hot and popular, right? Right? I mean, that's exactly what's happened. I have teenagers, you have teenagers. It's pretty hard in that small scope of experience to argue the fact that the people with the most athletic ability and the people that look the best are going the furthest in life. But just because a plan works doesn't mean it's from God. And just because evil will thrive for a day or vanity will thrive for a day, as Psalm 37 says, doesn't mean it's for eternity. And so what Facebook and time will teach you is that beauty does not last and will become a prison. It is a vicious covenant partner that doesn't just come to comfort you. 
it comes to kill you. And it starts off with sweetness and allure and clear and apparent obvious benefits, but it is not the covenant of Yahweh and it should not be trusted. And so what is Rick Thomas doing for our brothers and sisters in Christ? He's showing them where their real covenant is. God is not the only one offering covenants. Egypt, the world, and pretty much everything else in our life is not just interested in comforting us, it is interested in covenanting with us. In a, covet, a covenant of protection, promotion, provision. What do you trust is your provision? Abram's, Abram's plans do not work out. We're gonna continue on and he is going to continue. His plan that worked for a short time is not going to last in the long run. And ultimately, all things will end up downhill with God and glory attached to it. And so he will take this wealth and out of that wealth will become a slave named Hagar. And in the time of not trusting, he will see the servant Hagar, take her as his own and have the son that he was not supposed to have, the son that didn't involve faith and promise. So where did that come from in the beginning? It came from the plan that all, all steps that we make that don't take trust, that have some other thing, will end up in the wrong direction. We just don't see it yet. Do you trust it just at its word? When you're 13, it takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? To believe that beauty and popularity is not the king, it's hard. But if we would trust it, there's promises in this room that because you believed and trusting in a promise about marriage or about ministry or about life, that your 13-year-old self would not have been here if it wasn't for the promise of God and the faith that he gave you. And you should be thankful even this morning to the fact that God has saved you from yourself. God hasn't helped you with yourself. He saved you from your own worst enemy, which is you, you and your plans. And so the plans of God, or the plans of Abram do not end up good in the end. His wealth actually causes strife between him and Lot, which we'll pick up in a moment or next, next week. Lot's gonna like split off, cause a civil war, da, 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 and it's gonna cause all this strife and tension and problems. The, the, the plans of man, apart from the plans of God, are not only not successful, they are deeply harmful. And there's consequences. And he's trying to help, he's trying to save, he's not trying to starve. He's trying to save us when we enter lands of famine. So this is how the whole thing concludes. And there's a great irony here. I hope that you enjoy this as much as I do. Verse 35, or no, it's not verse 35. Um, verse uh, 17, it says, the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because Abram's wife, Sarai. Verse 14, so Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He says, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Verse 19, why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here, Here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything, everything he had. Did you, catch, did you catch that? If we're doing the whole Bible project thing, you know, design patterns and, and seeing the repetition of, of the literary structure, like every time there's a repentance moment, there's always the question, what, what have you done? Remember that? What happens to Adam and Eve when they eat the fruit? And what happens to Cain when he kills Abel. And what happens to Ham when he walks in on his dad? The same thing always happens. What have you done? What have you done? And who is the, usually the voice of the person that says, what have you done? It is God. But what has God done here in the great paradox and irony, the same as he does with Herod and the same as he'll do with a donkey or rocks that can cry out, is he's used, used the exact enemy of Abram to speak the word of the Lord to him. This is the great paradoxical craziness of God's sovereignty is God has used Abram's problem to help Abram somehow. This is not a prescription to go on sinning so that we can boast in God's grace. This is not an invitation to go on and do bad things and make bad plans, but it is an observation that God continually uses all sorts of mess that we create to bless us despite ourselves. How does he do that? 
This is what he wants us to know about his character, to test the covenant in our heart. And ultimately, every test has failed, but God is faithful in every situation and God is using donkeys and Herods and problems and diseases and and issues in our life to still speak to the hard-hearted, knucklehead parts of our life because he's trying to save us from ourselves. Despite ourself, Abram is his own worst enemy. He says, take your wife and go. What, did, what, what is the word of the Lord? Like if, 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 if Abram were to ask, what should I be doing? What is God saying and what should I be doing about it? What is the answer? The answer is chapter 12, verse one. Go. Don't stay. Don't linger. Don't be in Egypt. Don't ask people and your wife to protect them. Go, you should be going and you should be going with your wife. Abram, that's what you should be doing. And so the irony and the paradox of God using our problems and even our enemies to speak truth to us, it's a profound mystery that maybe we'll never understand. But God makes Abram an unsuccessful sinner. And Abram is not helping himself or asking God to help him. Abram is his own worst enemy and God is saving Abram from himself as he saves us from ourselves so often. So Abram goes up from Egypt as opposed to going down the wrong direction. He goes back up to Egypt. He returns, he repents. Egypt of Negev, with his wife and everything he had, the way he should have been from the very beginning. And Lot went with him. And Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and in gold, which is a foreshadowing of some of the problems that are gonna come because you're not supposed to take alliances and gold and women and wives from the Egyptians. And so God's allowing another parental moment to be kind of set up here within the seams of the story. So from Jev, he went from place to place until he came back to the last place he had an offering. And maybe that's the advice to us this morning. If you sinned, don't cover up sin with sin and fix wrong with wrong. Today is the day. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, but turn. It's never too late to turn. It's never too late to call. It's never too late to delete the app. It's never too late to confess. It's never too late to follow God and trust God. And you will be surprised at the years that he will multiply and the intimacy that he will collect and, and, and bless and pour on you because all of the blessing is not about the poverty and the wealth. It is about the trust. And today's, today, today is designed to, tr- to test the covenant, not so that you can be starved, but so you can be saved. So you can trust in the covenant, how are we becoming people of faith and of substance, of people that are not being dictated by the bread or, or being enslaved by relationships or, or approval of man or whatever? How are we becoming people of faith? Faith, faith is being built through the test. It is being, ba- being built by our trust in the original calling of the test. And so he goes back, he goes back, he goes back up. And, uh, and the text says... Um, From Negev, he went to the place until he came to Bethel, to the place of Bethel and Ai, which we read last week where he should have been, where his tent had been earlier and where he first built an altar. And he says, Abram called on the name of the Lord. He got right back where where he started. He took a little, little bit of a detour. So faith is what? Faith grows through testing our trust in the promises of God until we can know the character of God. Faith is not about becoming more disciplined or more, chivalrous than chauvinistic. It's not becoming you know, richer or doing more with less. It is about trusting. Today is about trusting. It is about the focus of what is God's promise meaning to me today and how will I respond to it? I wonder how you feel about that question. Here's the intentional question to consider. The easier way of saying that instead of covenant because that's fancy religious language What Rick Thomas will tell you in the counseling seat is your covenant is just who you think is the source of your protection. Like you have a job and uh, 
you know, you hustle and you work and you're dreaming and you set goals for yourself and you got 2020 and you're doing stuff and there's nothing wrong with doing stuff. Absolutely nothing wrong with, is there anything wrong with bread? Is God's famine telling us that something is wrong with bread? Is there something wrong with hard work and discipline? Is there something wrong with going and growing? No, but none of it has life. None of it has life. The story would scream at us today, except for trust in the promise. It's not that Abram will become a great name. It's that God is making him a great name. And only on the basis of faith that it would be accredited righteousness. Only that Abram would go and trust, that Abram would just take God at his word. Do you trust the words of Jesus in these areas? Who is Who is the Lord and the master? Is it the bread or is it the bread of life? That's the question. Who do you trust? Who's the source? And you will know who your source is when the thing gets famined out of your life. That's a gift to you. It hurts, but it's good for you because it's showing you who you really trust. What you really trust for your provision. That's what will come about when the famine hits you. What famine are you in? Because that's the classroom. And this moment is only not wasted if you will learn to see the purpose of the moment. The purpose is to learn how to trust. What is the famine? What is the thing that you are learning to trust? Because at the end of the day, it's only him. We don't want a life apart from him. We don't want our own plan. It will work for a while, but it won't work in the long run. We only want his plans. We have life short and, 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 and not too many moments left. And we, we want to see our faith grow, to grow from no faith you know, to much faith, to see our trust in the word, to become trust in character, to grow in a history with God, to grow in favor with God. And man, there's growth to be done. What is it? That, that, that you trust. This is how Peter would say, the Apostle Peter, and I'll actually invite um, the, the worship team to come forward and, and, and we'll respond, but this is, I think, what we can um, create a summary for. We can summarize this in the New Testament lens. First Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 7 says it this way. He says, look, uh, these things, um, February 2nd, what is it? February 2nd, 2020, these things, this has come to you. God has, has purposed it. It's not just on accident that you are in Greenville, South Carolina. I hope it's here. You're here because you're called, because you sense God's grace and peace and because he found you where you were, not where you should be. And he's called you to a place and we can start from the place of grace. But then the grace moment becomes into a trust moment. And what can I do with the gift of faith, the measure of faith that I have? Will I invest it? Will I, will I respond to it or will I become passive? So he says, this day has come with a purpose. So that proven genuineness of your faith. I've heard it said that if faith doesn't cost us something, it won't be worth something. If your faith doesn't cost you something today, it won't be worth anything tomorrow. So it's come today with a test so that it can build your faith. There has to be purpose for the pain. God is too good to just let his kids be in famine. You're in a famine. I'm in a famine. Doesn't mean that God's good, not good. He's cruel and he wants to burn us like an ant in a magnifying glass. He's using famine because devil's overplayed his hands so that he can build up your faith, which is genuine, greater worth than gold and famine and bread and anything that Pharaoh could give him or his wife for that matter. Are you free? Are you free of Pharaoh? Are you covenanted with the other covenant? which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's more important things than bread. There's more important things in your life. Don't sell yourself short. There's more important things in your life than somebody's attention and approval and promotion. Don't sell your soul down to Egypt. Don't sell your wife down to Egypt for that. You're worth more than that. Have you forgotten what you're worth and what he started in you, he's gonna finish in completion. Don't lose sight of that and sell out early. Hang on. 
continue forward, press in and persevere, God is yet doing something great in you and building your faith. The most important thing that you have is your faith to responding to his call. He's calling you, he's calling me, he's calling us out to go, to go and not get stuck and continue on and build up little altars and other places to temples of unknown gods, of things that don't move and have eyes and ears, but to give ourselves fully. He's not trying to take, he's trying to give. He's not trying to starve, he's trying to save. And he is our greatest friend. And we will walk, it's not we, we might, it's we will. We trust God his word, we continue on and not, not only live in his word, we live in his character. And that's the reward. And I wanna encourage you, if you've ever been there before or if you've never been there before, there are people in this room that I, can, I know we could go up on the microphone and, and testify to, to, to the story and the history of God. We don't want just theology. We want stories. We want steps. We want, we want a life. He'll build it for us if we follow. Would you stand with me? And we'll, uh, we'll just take a moment. So, um, so Lord Jesus, as we just uh, close up this text for the morning, we thank you that it continues on in the same storyline. And I'm encouraged. I, I'm um, provoked this morning to want to set my life on something more important than bread. And, uh, and God, I pray that you would just make us people of faith. I know that you are. I know that you are. I don't even need to ask you for the promise you've given. So we trust, we leave, we go, we don't tarry. And we follow you knowing that there's never regret in trusting you and following you with the most important things of our life. So we go to you in this place and we just I invite your Holy Spirit in this room, call it out. As though Rick Thomas were here, call out the false covenants. We, we gotta lay them down and we're gonna return. That's what we're here this morning to do. We don't wanna leave unchanged. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.